The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Hi, everybody. So we'll go ahead and get started. Maybe before I forget, I'll mention that uh, next weekend, Shelley Graff and I will be leading Common Ground's residential retreat. Gabe Keller-Flores will be teaching. And we're still looking for one more soup maker for that retreat. If you want to help take care of all of our retreatants, we have the pots and we have the recipe. The soup is uh, kale white bean soup. Um, You can just see Carrie or Scott at the end or Gabe is over there, and we put some slips of paper out too that will help you track down the recipe. But it would be great if somebody were interested in supporting the community in that way. Just let us know if that makes sense for you. So it feels nice to be back. I got that flu that's been going around, and boy, it's so interesting to be sick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and uh, you know, we have this body-mind, and it's really integrated. And so when the body feels like, and you can fill in the blank, (laughs) you know, the mind isn't very good for much. And it's so interesting, this really kind of comes to the topic today, and I thought maybe even beginning a a long-time topic of the four divine abodes that maybe Shelley and I will be covering for the next couple months. If you don't know, these are the four beautiful qualities of the heart talked a lot about in the Buddhist teachings of loving-kindness, compassion, equanimity, and appreciative joy. As if these are the only four emotions needed to function as a human being. Wouldn't that be interesting to explore that possibility, to sort of deal with even moments that require a real fierceness? Can that fierceness, that intensity arise out of love, right? Maybe. I think that's the, that's sort of the issue at hand for these next number of weeks. And it, maybe this is an in, partic- in particular or particularly relevant after two weeks ago when I did teach last and I was talking about the icy couch. Some of you, I'm sure, were there and I got a little feedback. <laughs> which, you know, Buddhism in general can have sort of a reputation of being a little grim. And definitely, for sure, there's a shadow of nihilism. I mean, everything. There's shadows everywhere. Um, And so the teachings of the Buddha also have has its shadows, one of them being the kind of nihilistic view. Okay, so life is an icy couch, perfectly formed. So this is just a short recap. But the wrong conclusion is, okay, I just need to get real about the icy, cold, hard nature of reality. And then at least I won't be pretending it's otherwise, right? See, it doesn't sound very satisfying. (laughs) It's like, why would people keep coming back? (laughs) But that's not what the Buddha said, you know, that life is an icy couch. This is just an image that a particularly well-known uh, Zen teacher used, this icy couch, Chokobek. And we had her article up on our website, so you can still read it if you want. So I think a very good article. 
The point that Jokobak and more generally the Buddha is making is when we skillfully see life from a particular angle, like, oh, it's messy, it's complicated, you never get done. You go out and get wood. We have a wood-burning stove that we use primarily for heat in the winter. You know, and then after a while, you got to get more wood. And then you got to. Then the hard part is you got to like get the hot ashes out because you can't put any more wood in. You know, and then and then there's all the dust and you know, and you got to keep it burning bright so they're not polluting the air more than necessary. And it's like one example. Nothing is ever done. That's part of the icy couch. It's never done. Never does it get done. You dust and then you dust again. Or, you know, your relation, one of your important relationships has been neglected and then it kind of blows up on you and you bring a lot of integrity to that relationship and you listen and you heal and the relationship hums hums along for a while. And then once again, it sort of gets dusty or gets, you know, needs repair work, needs attention. And that's just how it is in life. Whatever we're looking at, it's messy in this way. And so the interesting thing about that image of the icy couch, basically highlighting on purpose, strategically highlighting the imperfect, unsatisfactory, messy nature of life is it really provokes like, well, what is it in my life right here, my body, mind, what is it that can get comfortable? What is it that can be curious about the icy couch, the messiness of life? Well, that's the awakening we're interested in, that wisdom and love that's not afraid, that has the capacity to be unafraid, the capacity to be released or soft, the capacity to be interested, the capacity to be unafraid. But you see, we need how unworkable life is to reveal, let's just say, let's call it that quality of the heart that can be intimate. But we need life as it is to reveal that we don't have to have a problem with life as it is. That we know how to show up. So that if fierceness is required, we know how to be fierce. If patience is required, we know how to be patient. If having a sense of humor is required, we know how to do that. If crying is required, we know how to do that. Right? And so... You see, that's why a lot of, not so much Buddhist traditions, but other uh, religious, spiritual traditions, they have a big emphasis, or can, on surrender. Right? Surrendering to God or something like that. It's just another way. Right? We have to somehow get out of the way. <laughs> we have to, because in getting out of the way, we realize that we can be present. We can be responsive, engaged and responsive in a free way without needing the moment to be different than it is. So we have to play sometimes that 
edge of it's not it's not the only medicine and it's certainly not the only right medicine at certain moments this sort of looking on purpose looking at what's challenging what's difficult and seeing being curious about well what 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 capacity does my heart have to open to that you see, you can't force it. Like I tried that when I was, this is the point I was going to make about being sick. You know, it's like, oh, I'll just do that Dharma thing. You know, I just feel what it feels like. I had this, I still do to some degree, have this sort of watery feeling in my lungs, you know, and uh, it was really bad earlier in the week. <clears throat> and it was like I, somewhere in the middle of the week, I started to get some energy. I felt more like a human being. But it was like I was dead on the inside, you know, and it was like I would sort of do that move, and it was like it was a feeling I didn't want to feel. Like we don't want to feel like we can't be a human being. And the problem in the middle of the week was I no longer wanted to rest, right? But I didn't want to be alive either. I didn't want to do anything, but I didn't want to not do anything. It was really interesting place. Because I, and it's like I was really, the part that I saw over and over again is like wanting to move, wanting to be able to do that right move where I would feel better instead of this, like I was saying in the guided meditation, is there a way, I mean, it takes uh, some space in the mind to ask this question, is there a way to be interested in this, right? Is there a heart that can meet this, have a beautiful relationship with this? I mean, the answer was clearly no, (laughs) most of the time. (laughs) But that was very interesting, you know, that idea that this was not workable, that, that I think the sign of many years of practice is the mind being curious about that very clear no. No, this is not interesting. This is not okay. It's like where panic feels really justified. Freaking out feels justified. I'm sure we know these places in our life where really like throwing things around in a way that's self-destructive seems appropriate. I often feel that way politically that we can, uh, we meaning all of us collectively as a community here in the United States, that uh, because I I think it's fair to characterize the times as troubled, I'm not saying that they haven't been troubled for a long time. Um, And uh, when we get troubled by how much trouble there is, then we can get into this place of, well, let's just break some dishes. You know, let's just throw some things around. <laughs> this is good. Like in the middle of, you know, toward the middle, you know, second third of winter, you know, when we hear there's more snow coming this week and we can start to feel this way too. It's like it can, this is what oppression feels like. Even in you know our relative, like from my point of view, a relatively privileged existence, 
you know, about being sick and then the weather and then, you know, we can add on. And then it's just like, I want to break some dishes. I want to throw some things around. And it, I noticed that like when the cat, which was pretty good most of the week, you know, would just want a little attention. And it was like, how dare it? <laughs> As if it didn't know I was sick or hurting or something like that. We can get really, like, really, I could see, like, oh, yeah, I could kick that cat. <laughs> I didn't. But we could see, like, oh, yeah, that that capacity is there. <laughs> and and so when we can see that the self, self-destructiveness, that kind of mean-hearted, mean-spiritedness, and then get curious about it. Oh, that's interesting. It really helps us be real and really understand kind of the forces that move around us because we tend to be unconscious when we're that person, but we're very conscious when other people are that person, right? And often very judgmental. Like, get a grip. You're not helping. I get that you're hurting, but you're not helping. You know, get your act together. Because sometimes that's not what we want to do. When we're really hurting, the sort of default system in the mind is just to spread it around, spread the hurt around. Because at least we feel like then we're in company. We've got company. You know, other people are hurting. Okay. It's not just me at least. I was listening uh, to um, On Being. Um, Krista Tippett was interviewing, I'm forgetting the person's name, but this uh, uh, immigrant from Bulgaria, I believe she was, uh, who started Brain Pickings. Anybody know that website? It's kind of an interesting website. And just sort of her musings about science and philosophy and the meaning of life. But from a real pragmatic point of view, real like, well, I shouldn't, it's also poetic too, so, but anyway, uh, she said something right at the beginning of the interview that I thought was really interesting, and I think speaks to this place where we're meeting challenges, and we think we're, (coughs) we have an authentic relationship, like, I'm really applying myself, I'm trying to get it. I'm trying to get what's going on, like why I'm suffering. But we're really still in this cognitive relationship to our life, to our experience. Like we think that we can figure it out, that there's an answer. When we get the answer, we get the perspective, we get the right philosophical approach, and then we'll kind of have something that we own. We'll own that perspective. And this is true with Dharma, the Buddhist teachings too. Okay, I get everything's empty. It's all nature, not self. And then we're kind of using that idea as a something to sort of protect myself with. And uh, she said something that made me really want to listen to more of what she had to say, because she and this is going to be a rough paraphrase, but she said something like we. Uh, we want to figure it out, you know, the spinning life. We want to 
figure out like, okay, how to hold, how to make sense of the unsatisfactoriness or of the unreliableness, of the messiness. But we never can make sense of it. And the reason we can't make sense of the world is because we are the world. And I know that can sound really sort of new agey to say that. But we have to sense where those words are pointing. Like the answer we're looking for is this experience. See, we think the answer is going to come in the form of an idea or an explanation or even a mental picture. But this is the resolution, the actual realization of this. But you see how this we're kind of chronically dismissive of this lived experience, this dynamic of the body and the mind. We don't respect it. So in the months ahead when we start unpacking the Buddhist teachings on love, compassion, equanimity, and joy, appreciative joy. It's really this, that what the Buddha is pointing to is, are the emotions, maybe we should say. The Buddha is pointing to these emotions that allow us to have a real, authentic relationship with this. And this is that uncertain, ungraspable ungraspable dynamic of the body and the mind. This is it, this experience. And instead of the habit of dismissing it outright as like, that's not a helpful answer, Mark. Saying this is it isn't a helpful answer. It's like a lack of imagination, right? Because we immediately this is it, we might touch in for a moment, but then that strong conviction, that strong idea that this isn't it, starts to play out in our minds. No, no, this isn't it. There's nothing here. You see, like when we say it out loud, it's it's shocking that we're so convinced that our life as it is right now isn't relevant. And that Somehow, having some idea is the way. And that's really the essence of, in Buddhism we call it samsara, the cycles of suffering. It's not that we don't really want to address suffering. Humans do, because we're getting spun around all the time by everything. And when we bring some integrity some honesty that, yeah, I am getting spun around. I do have my version of an icy couch. I am sincerely interested in resolving the spinning. We mistakenly think that the resolution will come from some concept, some understanding, conceptual understanding. But like I said, the resolution is really uncovering the heart, or whatever, it's hard to find the right, the right word. Uncovering the heart, uncovering a way of being, a way of relating that knows how to show up, that knows how to include. 
See, that's why it's love. That's why love is like one way for us to talk about it in a way that actually sets us up to practice. Like to imagine like this relationship with our life right now. Whatever it is, the experience of the body sitting, the leftover emotions that are reverberating, the feeling tones, whatever our experience of a human being, but to have a relationship to our life right now, which is just this activity of the body and mind. This is our life. To have a relationship that's really beautiful. In a way, what we're doing is saying, I'm not going to wait for the world to be more perfect. I'm going to start relating in beautiful ways, healing ways right now. And so maybe that's how we engage the world. Maybe that's the spiritual path. It's it's more about the relationships or the way of relating than it is about the particulars of the world, who we are, what's happening even, but how the heart is relating. Do we have an authentic relationship? We had this quote on the bulletin board in the old building. Um, Common Ground was in another building seven blocks away for 15 years from from 93 to 2008 or 2009. So we've actually, this is almost exactly our 10-year anniversary. We moved in in February of 2009. So yeah, 10 years we've been in this building. We were in the other building for 15 years. And for many years on the bulletin board, we had this simple line from Rumi translated by Coleman Barks. I've lived on the lip of insanity, wanting to know reasons. Knocking on a door, it opens. I've been knocking from the inside. Right. So it's, there's this real turnaround and it's not just a one-time turnaround but many times in our life where we and wouldn't that be nice for each of us maybe that's good homework if you're going to be coming and as we look at the teachings on love for a while now wouldn't it be interesting for us to take the time use our lived experience and to kind of even back when we were four or five So way back, earliest memories all the way to present, times when we've had a little revolution in understanding the experience of love, like an authentic experience of including, of being included, of including, of uh, an absence of boundary, right? So wherever that happened, it could have been with you and your turtle when you were six, you know, or whatever. It doesn't really matter. But there's something about kind of remembering. It's I just started a great book, by the way, uh, Overstory, I think it's called. Anybody read that book? A couple of people. Yeah, it was recommended by one of my favorite authors, Louise Erdrich, and I was reading her blog, and she mentioned it. She read it this summer, and so I, I just picked it up. And uh, I just read the first chapter last night. It was so healing. But it's just it's just a short version of somebody planted a chestnut tree back in Iowa a long time ago. 
And, um, and then all the chestnut trees died on the East Coast. Some of you know this history. It's just amazing. It was one of the predominant trees on the East Coast, up and down the East Coast for millennia. And then some fungus came in around the turn of the century, maybe late 1800s. Anybody know the date? And wiped out in just a matter of a few decades all the chestnuts or most of the chestnut trees on the East Coast. But there was this one in Iowa far enough from the fungus that it lived on. And of course, there are others sort of in various protected spaces. But for some strange reason, this farmer in Iowa decided that on the 21st of the month at a certain time, he was going to take a picture of this tree. And he started way back in the early 1900s or late 1800s, whenever the first cameras came out. And then he passed it down to one of his kids and then to another. And for, I forget, 75 years, 21st of the month, they've been taking a picture of this tree in uh, some farm in western Iowa. And it's a little bit like when we look at love, there's something that will come online if we have enough data points you know, about anything. If we are careful, full of care in our observation, right? we'll learn something about the issue at hand which was really about release and understanding that everything we need for the release the heart seeks is already here. But we don't know, we're kind of mistaken about where it is or how we're going to find it. We basically take ourselves away from the moment into our ideas of the moment. right? So we need, it's really about this uncertain, changing, flowing, wormy reality of the body and the mind right here, right now, which isn't a thing, right? It's a changing, it's like a river, the present moment. And it's and whether we know it or not, the heart, or whatever you want to call that, is in relationship with the present moment, the worminess. Some of you are in the Buddhist studies, and uh, I was sick on Monday night, so I sent out a a talk for folks to listen to. We're doing dependent co-arising, which is really about the process nature of our existence. That it doesn't have, there's no ground because it's always a conditional flow. And the title of this talk by Ajahn Sushito, this well-known Western Buddhist monk, was. Uh, what was it? All worms, no can. <laughs> Is that it, Gabe? Yeah, all, all worms, no can. Because, you know, we always think of a can of worms. Those of you who are people fish, right? But but our life is all worms, no can. There's no container. There's We always, the thinking mind always wants to define it with a concept. Make a can. Oh, yeah, there's change. I experience change. Right, but whatever I am, whatever the way of relating, the way of being is, that's also the change. There's nothing outside of the changiness, the worminess of life. So, this is kind of what we're, uh, you know, this this teaching on love is really that capacity to be able to. Include worminess, 
the unreliableness, the uncertainty, the inability to grasp the truth in any satisfactory way can't be grasped. That's why they're in, in certain Buddhist traditions, Zen traditions, they have these sort of strange statements. If you see the Buddha on the side of the world road, kill him <laughs> or kill it, right? Because it's a concept, right? It's not going to help you. All you're going to do is build an institution around it. <laughs> and then you'll be threatened by other institutions, right? That have a slightly different take on the truth. And it always is problematic. So it's like a lived thing, a changing, fluid, lived thing. Whatever freedom is, it's not something you're going to ever get, right? Because this is what this is how you know we're in that world that perpetuates suffering when we think I'll be saved. Because whatever it is, it's a way of relating. It's a way of being that has to be renewed moment by moment by moment. One of the things that you see the more you're around, especially around well-known teachers, is that they're people who have presumably a capacity to be free, to really be real, to be, you know, alive and open and open to the present moment in a loving way, in a wise way, and then not, <laughs> right? Because it isn't like, I mean, that's evidently what full awakening is, is when you don't lose it. But I haven't met those people yet. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm open to the fact that there are those people. But what I see in my own life, what I see in people around me, is like the capacity to be really beautiful, to be relating in a really beautiful way, really wise, fearless, loving way, and the capacity to lose that and to be a tight, frightened, reactive, hateful human being again, and then back and forth. And this is like our dynamic and what actually helps us be really forgiving with each other is when we see, like I did being sick, you know, just... And having all I had left was just, I knew that being a suffering human being wasn't the whole truth, you know, and I could have that serene, semi-serene, humorous, like, oh yeah, this is so interesting to feel stuck, right? Like to have some space around being the stuck person, being the person who's really ready to be done but wondering if I'll ever be done. Yeah. So I'm going to leave it here so we have some time to hear from a few of you before the children come in. Yeah, your own response. And like I said, well, I'll put some resources out later this week. Gabe and I will get some up on our website. So for those who want to read along, but we'll, like I mentioned, we'll be doing this topic for a number of months probably. But your own thoughts about relating wisely, lovingly to the present moment. What comes to mind? Yeah, Rebecca, start us off. Morning. My name is Rebecca. Thanks, Mark. Um, so it's been coming up for me this, well, iteratively, but it's this question about um, I can see that there are things that I do that are really hurtful to other people, parts of myself that personality, ego, whatever. And 
so in the in the moment I can settle and see it, but it still keeps coming and it, and um my relationship to it is to try to do some loving kindness with myself or some compassion for myself. But then that also, kind of you mentioned this in your talk, it kind of slips into this um, avoidance or not being as responsible as what's needed to the harm that I've caused. Does this yeah. question make sense? So it's like, I'm. how do I relate to those parts, keep coming back to that so that I can... St- Stop hurting myself and others with some of these things. Yeah, but but the but w- the preliminary work is to really be able. How can we meet? Are we willing to meet the person, this churning urn person here, that causes harm? Are we willing to have a a beautiful relationship with our imperfect selves? That yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that wasn't really raised that way, so we've got to squash it and kill it quickly. So if you've got an option B, that'd be good. (laughs) No, it's really true, and it's good that we're laughing because it's especially for people who kind of define themselves as like I don't, you know, we're basically afraid of being imperfect, having a personality, having stuff, having unfinished business. And, uh, but you see, we can't, how are we going to include other people with business if we can't include our own business? What is the appropriate, appropriate, appropriate way to relate to that? I've been thinking a lot about this because in a couple of weeks, uh, when Ruth King is here, Ruth has invited me to share a little bit, uh, on Sunday morning when, uh, she's here about Common Ground's work and my personal work on racism and the anti-racism work that we've been doing. And um, so I've been really feeling into this work about like uh, like owning, like what is that ownership like? And why am I afraid of ha- owning that? Only because I'm misunderstanding. It's like there's something, I know this sounds a little simplistic, but it's it we're responsible for our unskillfulness, for our conditioned racism, right? We're responsible for how our hearts are conditioned, but it's not personal. And it's somehow the coming together of those two things. Really like we need to know that it's not personal in order to take responsibility. As long as we think I'm unskillful, we can't take responsibility. Because it's not true. It's a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of that unskillful behavior to think that it's me. The correct thing to see is it in this wormy way, you know, like all of the things together. And there's not, there's not some boundary that makes it mine or societies or my parents or, right? It's just wormy stuff. And we have to own it. We have to own our wormy lives and the, how hate moves and how fear moves and all the stuff that moves in our lives. We have to own it. We have to take responsibility. And because of that, the impersonal nature, the not-self teachings, it's a strategy that helps us be intimate. It's not an absolute truth. 
oh, it's all impersonal, so I don't have to deal with it. That's, a, that's the wrong way of using that teaching. It's like, I want to deal with it. I want to know how to show up. I want to know how to contribute and make the world, you know, address suffering, basically. So I'm willing to do anything. So is, is it safe for me to take away, because I feel like what I'm taking away now is, what is how do I have a sense, body, of the worm, worms? Yeah. Like, I feel that like disgusted feeling of being imperfect or of having yeah. caused harm. That's what we have to learn how to meet. Okay. Yeah, you know, and especially <laughs> with those relationships you really care about. <laughs> there, there. See, we try to get away from the icy couch, but <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Rebecca. Looks like we have time for one more. Yeah, Dave. So. Yes, yeah, so I, I struggle with this um, sometimes. Worminess, changiness is apparent. Um, and also it's apparent to me when I um, am knocking on the door from the inside. But it still doesn't ask, answer the question of what's outside or if there is an outside. It's, it's, there's this hunger that I have, I think it might be universal, to believe that there is an outside. There are many voices who articulate um, an experience with the outside, um, and I just and so while I completely agree with and understand the utility of um, understanding, you know, of dealing with worminess, changiness, it still does not in my own mind, settle the question of the other side of the door. Yeah, but whatever the mystery is, you, we might find it skillful to recognize that it's this, you know, that we are the mystery. Because you see, it, it really flips it out. Like, if we think the mystery's outside somewhere or somewhere, we keep missing the point. So it's an inner exploration. Not inner away from the world, inner into the world, into this embodied reality here. And the thing is, it's only our idea that says that it's not here. And that's why that point that uh, this woman made this morning, you know, we are the world, even though I know that's kind of, sounds like it should be a lyric to us. It probably is a lyric to a song. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we you were, we know we're good Buddhists when we feel a little bit like we want to barf. <laughs> because we're not interested in that movement of emotion. We've grown suspicious, right? But, but we have to be careful for that sort of siding, sliding into cynicism. That there isn't, there isn't something we haven't seen, or something that hasn't been realized, or that there isn't the release, the freedom that our heart intuits, right? Because I can tell you that there is freedom, right? And we've touched. Many of us have touched into it, and then we want to grasp it, and then we lose it. Because it isn't something that the mind, the thinking mind, can grasp. 
but it doesn't mean it's not available. And a lot of times we'd rather be certain it's not available than to stay open to the search, to the practice, right? Because the practice is very humbling. It means we're going beyond certainty because certainty only comes from ideas. The present moment, there's nothing certain in the present moment. There's only certainty in terms of ideas like there's nothing, you know, there's nothing, why bother? I was going to show you, the kids are here, I'll just end with this. There's this very famous, iconic New Yorker's cartoon, probably decades, 40 years old, two people in Zen robes, one old, craggly guy, one kind of young, fresh face, and the caption is, nothing happens next, this is it. Because <laughs> that's what we think, that you know we're waiting around and something special will happen, and then the old, craggly, cynical person says, oh, nothing happens, this is it, you know. But that there's a question of like, what are we doing when we're waiting around? Are we actually interested in having a beautiful relationship? Or are we interested in confirming our idea that there's nothing here in this moment of value, right? Because if, if what we're doing when we're sitting is like, oh yeah, just a stupid breath. If all we're doing is confirming that there's nothing here, we're going to live in that hell realm. So it's, it's not easy for us human beings to be in a state of openness, of real humility, real curiosity. That's the hard work. Yeah. So we'll leave it here. I saw some children, so we'll welcome them in. Sing a song before we end today. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.